Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Welcome to part two of a special year-end edition of The Point with me, Lu Xin, coming to you from Beijing. We are taking a closer look at the development of uh, China-US relations over the year 2022, and we try to do that by looking at seven specific moments. Today is part two of that journey. I'm pleased to be joined from Beijing by Zun Ahmed Khan, journalist and research fellow the Center of China and Globalization Think Tank from Berlin, Germany, by Professor Huang Jing, University Professor and Director of the Institute of the U.S. and Pacific Studies at the Shanghai International Studies University, and also Richard von Weizsäcker Fellow at Robert Bosch Academy, and by Dr. Li Cheng from Washington, who is director of the John L. Thornton China Center and senior fellow of the Foreign Policy Program with Brookings Institution. Welcome to the show. So let's continue our discussion. U.S. Uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited China's Taiwan Island on August the 2nd. China called it a serious violation of the One China policy and the, and the provisions of the three joint communiques, which are considered the, the political foundation of bilateral ties. And I had the opportunity on that subject to interview exclusively China's Vice Minister of Foreign Affairs, Ma Zhaoxu. He rebutted accusations that... Uh, China overreacted. It is the U.S. that is threatening peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. Taiwan is a part of China's territory. There's no such thing as a median line in the street. The Chinese armed forces conduct military exercises in waters off China's Taiwan Island to safeguard sovereignty and territorial integrity of China. Our measures are open and proportionate. They are in line with the both domestic law and international law and practices. They are beyond reproach. The US and its allies often come to the adjacent waters of China, flexing muscles and stirring up troubles. They conduct up to a hundred military exercises each year. They, instead of someone else, are the ones that overreact and escalate the situation. Zun, I would like to ask your opinion from mm. your perspective, coming from a third party. Do you understand the the sensitivity of this issue to the Chinese and why this issue is just never understood um, mm. as a red line? Yeah, for the United States, because China said it again and again, and it seems that the United States just do not see it that way or do not believe what China said. And and certain politicians keep poking at that sore spot, uh, creating troubles that uh, many Chinese believe are unnecessary. I can understand that sentiment, that deep-rooted sentiment for reunification. It isn't an aggressive sentiment. It's something that's just deeply ingrained in Chinese mindsets, you know, Chinese thinking. And when you look at the history, it can be understood, of course, the fact that including the United States, I mean, the premise of the detente was also in recognition of the one China principle, one China policy, right? So I think the fact that countries across the world can understand why that this is a sensitive issue 
for the Chinese people, for China, among some Western countries, among people who who believe that actually Taiwan is, who don't believe in the one China principle. Uh, They say that, oh, actually, Taiwan is a de facto country. I mean, it is just, um, there is nothing in common from both sides. And I think here, I do not believe that even though the reason many people in the global south developing countries saw that as a provocation against China, saw that as a trend. Uh, first, there was, you know, again, Xinjiang. These countries themselves have been uh, victimized, victims of this kind of provocation. So they can understand it is a provocation and it shouldn't, I mean, it's nothing good can come out of it. Uh, but at the same time, I think China, Beijing, Chinese scholars, Chinese people can do a a better job even more to help uh, the global south especially and maybe people in the developed world understand the Chinese perspective on Taiwan. I think that empathy from that point of view it can still be uh, stronger. People sitting in Pakistan or South Africa, I mean, I don't see them understanding why necessarily maybe the Chinese reaction from the people was this, this strong. Mm. Professor Huang, do you have an answer to this question? Is this something that we have not done well enough or is this something that is, I don't know, what is missing? Is there something missing in the way how we have expressed our our sensitivity on this issue? There is a fundamental difference between one China principle, which China always insisted, and one China policy, which United States has upheld to, to this time. A fundamental differences are two. Number one, China believes Taiwan is part of China, a part of People's Republic of China. But if you read the three communists carefully, the United States only acknowledge that your Chinese, your Chinese think there is only one China. We take no position on that. This is foundation of the so-called Taiwan status is undetermined. A second, in, from the United States point of view, peaceful settlement of the Taiwan question or Taiwan issue is the end, it's not means. But to the Chinese, peaceful settlement or peaceful reunification is a means. The end is reunification. That has created the so-called strategic ambiguity the United States has tried to play on ever since the normalization of the relationship between China and the United States. But the problem is, as this competition becomes more and more fierce, the mm-hmm. United States try to hollow out the one China policy so that to challenge China or to contain China making full use of Taiwan. That is to squeeze out the last drop of Taiwan's strategic value. That's why before that three community Taiwan action now become Taiwan action three, six insurances, which is secret before now become public. And of course, three community. And United States is firmly against the change of status quo. And not only by one side, but the effort to do this. So in that regard, United States, of course, thinks it's okay for Pelosi to visit Taiwan. Of course, this is not unprecedented. Uh, this happened before. But for the Chinese, this is a brutal violation of the one China principle and yeah. one China policy. Of course, yeah. Pelosi is a number three person in the United States uh, government. And Pelosi right. went to Taiwan by military airplane, not even by the commercial airplane. And worse, and Pelosi stayed in Taiwan overnight. But having said this, I think another factor make Pelosi issue so explosive and such an issue is that it is a best example, a typical example of how the internal politics of the United States play out in a counterproductive way 
we know for sure okay. from public available information, yeah. both Biden administration and the US military is opposed to Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, yeah. but it did not work out. Dr. Lee, do you see the Taiwan issue being further exploited as a potential inflection point in US-China relations now that Pelosi made the step and the incoming House Speaker announced that he will visit the region again once he's in office? Is this um, issue potentially causing a real problem for both sides? Well, it is already uh, causing problems. The of question course, is, more uh, problems. Do you uh, see that coming? Uh, uh, certainly that uh, we understand this is the core interest for China. No Chinese leader can survive when you are not uh, strong on that uh, issue, but also uh, Chinese public views is very, very strong. But at the same time, there's a mutually reinforced fear that uh, from the other parties uh, in the world, they all see that China think that you cross the red line, but the Taiwan and the United States think that uh, they are increasingly uh, marginalized because of China's ever-growing power. Uh, economic, military, technological, political, and, uh, and name it. So that's the uh, reason to explain some of the, the new moves. So I think that the issue will remain, but I uh, see very important development after Xi Jinping and the Biden's meeting uh, in G20. Biden came out of the meeting. He said that uh, I don't think China will use force uh, in the near future. That's a very interesting statement. I, I welcome that statement because the business community, you know, everywhere are very much concerned about that. If there's a war, everything will be gone. This will hurt China's interest, certainly hurt Taiwan and also American business community. So that statement is very important. Now there's some misunderstanding, I think you, you, you asked early on, because based on my reading, China certainly will be firm on that issue but uh, the Chinese Party Congress does not provide the timetable. I never see a Chinese leaders give a clear timetable about the Taiwan, but the Western narrative obsessed with timetable said it would be next few years or 2027. Well, they did their speculation. They did their calculation. Right. Based That's right, but China should explain uh, about this because this is kind of misleading. I think our emphasis should be on the incidents, unexpected incidents like Biden and President Xi Jinping both pointed out, not so much about the predetermined the things. I think that the, the, the war, I think uh, the older party should restrain, like uh, Zoom said, that uh, because this is uh, devastating. And uh, also this will be uh, what Dr. Kissinger said, the first AI war in human history. If you know, people in this country, United States, compare Ukraine war with Taiwan war, but it will be very, very different. And my friend Joshua Remo, he it was in your program before. He said that uh, the, if Ukraine war, it was the last war of 20th century, but the Taiwan war uh, involved United States and China will be the first war in the 21st century. So we should think about that such a war, there's no weakness. I think all the parties should work very, very hard to make sure that will not happen. And the older party should also restrain not unnecessarily provocative. Absolutely. I mean, a, a war would be extremely disruptive to the journey China is on to achieve right. its uh, national rejuvenation. Maybe that is also why, uh, whenever possible, China wants to reach out and make that message very clear. And that brings us to the um, moment number five. And, and I think uh, China's uh, State Council and Foreign Minister Wang Yi's trip to the United States was very interesting. He made this trip in person to the United States uh, in September, where he gave a series of speeches, especially when he attended the UN General Assembly. He also spoke at a 
Asia Society event, and he said the message we must send loud and clear is that now is the time to make serious reflections and get China-U.S. relations back onto the right track. Professor Huang, when people meet, the small talks matter, but how much difference would it make looking back, especially a few months later? I think that Wang's speech, of course, made a very genuine uh, kind of impression or effort that U.S. and China needs to get on the right track. And also you notice that Chinese government, Chinese leadership has said they do not believe U.S.-China relationship should be defined by competition. In other words, they have a totally different view on the relationship. But here we have three factors I think will make me a three factors, which I believe the situation is not optimistic. And number one, the consensus that China is a threat. China is the most consequential challenge in the United States still remain. That's perhaps the only consensus between the But even when, when former President Nixon visited China, he, he made it secretly. He did it secretly because people were against it. Yes. And I said at the time, China and the United States has faced a common enemy, Soviet Union. I said the mm. three conditions. Nowadays, the three conditions no longer All right. But secondly, we have to say that because the division and the polarization of U.S. politics, Biden administration is actually very weak. A lot of times it cannot deliver what it has promised. If you remember, for all the summit in 2022 between United States and China, the last paragraph is always both head of states will urge his team to put what they agree as a city mm -hmm. into practice. And as far as I know, United States never delivered. It's China that has delivered. And so that's the second. That is now the after midterm election, especially 2024 is coming, I think the Biden administration has already entered the election campaign. So in that regard, I think US-China, US policy for China will become more and more emotional, driven by political correctness rather than right. rationality. So well, in that regard, I think that okay, uh, I could... the relationship will remain about the same, if not, if not getting worse. Zoon, yes. your, your observation, because people, when they meet, when they touch hands, you know, when they shake hands, when they feel the temperature in the room, things may change. Maybe I'm too optimistic <laughs> on that. But, uh, and I'm not, I, 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 I'm not just speculating because I do hear from people who go into these rooms and talk to the people, Chinese scholars, for instance, and they feel that strong urge from the other side as well to reconnect. What is your understanding? Maybe interactions can help understand each other. But I think that idea from Trump to Biden administration, we saw not a change in perspective, but a change in approach. Uh, the China threat remained. And the real difference is going to be when developing regions, for example, we just had the US-Africa summit and you had African diplomats saying the difference between China and US right now is China sees us as an equal partner. The US didn't set a mutual agenda before this meeting. The other difference is the US, the communication tends to be, we can help Africa, not that we can help each other. I think developing regions at large, be it um, in parts of Asia, Latin America, Africa, they are going to shift the perspective and make perhaps U.S. diplomats, U.S. communication realize that people don't resonate with that ideological mindset. And in the medium and long term, the country, be it China, be it U.S., the one that will emerge stronger and more solid is the one that's going to be able to cooperate and collaborate with a majority of the world 
more effectively, more on an equal footing. So this is my optimism. Yeah, Dr. Lee, let me turn to you. I still want to be hopeful. I'm a diehard optimist. (laughs) When the travels can resume, do you expect more face-to-face interaction, which can bring a little bit more temperature to bilateral ties? Two comments, one for Zoom. I uh, agree with you about the you know, overemphasized ideology will not work. But at the same time, I also wanted to bring to the other end, sometimes uh, overemphasized on economic incentive could also have a backlash to a certain extent. It could not resolve the complicated situation in today's world, whether you're dealing with developer country or developing country. I think this is some lessons we should uh, understand. If uh, economic incentive uh, will promote peace and uh, and stability, I think the Taiwan issue will not end up like uh, today. Um, Dr. Lee, what is your rationale in saying economic? I think that the best things we should uh, understand that um, with economic disparity, with uh, in within country, uh, between country, the previous way to use economic commercial interests sometimes may not necessarily resonate no. very well for American public. They do not see that they help American middle class, American working class. Let's explain the labor union strongly resist the tariff lift by Biden administration. That explains they think that previous the economic exchange with China benefited Wall Street, corporate America, not the main street. So that's the things we need to be sensitive. Also, you see the developing countries also face some of the concerns. We do need to be sensitive. Now, uh, Wang Jing, you are absolutely right that we should pay attention to American domestic politics. But here's the question is how China will react to this dynamic and uh, how China should avoid the possible uh, trap. Uh, Is that the right idea to overemphasize ideological competition or different political system on the part of China? And also that uh, more importantly, I think Wang Jing, you know so well that, um, you know, uh, just like China is not a monolithic entity, United States is not a monolithic entity. And the people, scholars, they were also debating what the right policy should do uh, with China, uh, despite uh, this kind of general sentiment, but there's a lot of important differences. This is a, come to uh, Liu Xing's good point that uh, sometimes face with his dialogue, we will find out, despite all our differences, that there are some, some things are common. We do not want war. We also want to maintain the uh, economic prosperity in, uh, in the right. world. But of course, we are in a difficult period. I think that's very, very important. What is encouraging is that President Xi and President Biden met in person in Bali on November the 14th on the sidelines of the G20 summit in Bali, Indonesia. This was their first in-person encounter since Biden took office as U.S. president and both described the visit as candid and they reached a consensus agreement on a variety of pressing issues. And I had the opportunity to talk to Yukong Huang, who is senior fellow of the Asia program of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, but he appeared not so optimistic. There are two key issues which are driving tensions between the United States and China. One is Taiwan. The other is the trade technology war. And if you think about Taiwan and you hear messages, for example, that Kevin McCarthy, the likely new Speaker of the House, he's already announced that he wants to lead a delegation to visit Taiwan, just like Nancy Pelosi did. That will raise a lot of problems. The United States on October 7th initiated a broad restrictions on availability of advanced semiconductors available to China. This will have a major impact 
on China's ability to innovate and become more technology sophisticated. There's a lot of likelihood or possibility that tensions will get worse rather than better. Professor Huang, let me get your point on the technological race that's between the country. Certainly over the year 2022, we see more Chinese enterprises being put on the so-called entities list, more export controls uh, slap on semiconductor and more pressure put on U.S. allies not to export key equipment to China for the manufacturing of the um, high-end semiconductor chips. So in that regard, is Mr. Huang right that things will get worse? Yes, I kindly agree with him. But my point here is that the globalization of the economy, all the supply chains or production chains, as a result of market forces, capitalist market forces, always seek the most sufficient or efficient use of resources, the highest effectiveness of production activities, and of course, the highest profit. So nowadays, the globalization we see is driven again by market forces, not by any strategies, only by government policies. So in that regard, I think this effort to decoupling is a fake issue. It will not sustain, it cannot sustain. If you look past two or three years, despite all those efforts, despite the economy slowing down, and also despite, of course, the competition, the war and so on and so forth, the transition, capital transition on the global level is increasing. The trade is increasing. The kind of economic exchange, other indicators are increasing. That's my first point. My second point is that if you ask me what is the strongest common interest or common ground between the United States and China, I would say the global financial stability. You look at the Barlitz summit, Yellen was there and she was ranked above Blinken. I do believe right now, United States and China, both major powers, that's Neither of them wants a kind of 2008 financial tsunami. I think the two countries will have to and should, and I believe they are uh, cooperating with each other to prevent 2008 happening again. I think if there's any breakthrough point, Mm -hmm. global financial stability would be the next breakthrough point for the good relationship or stable or at least manageable relationship between the United States and China. Dr. Lee, your take on this very important face-to-face meeting and uh, the wording, the readout from both sides, substantive, you know, candid, but constructive. How do you look at the decisive role that this face-to-face, maybe not decisive, but what is the role of this meeting for bilateral ties in the next few months, maybe? Oh, it's very, very important that ex- explained uh, Blinken's uh, visit to Beijing in a few weeks. And also General Yellen, that uh, Wang Jing mentioned, also will likely to visit uh, China in February. And also that the next year that there will be G20 meeting in the US and uh, no, I'm sorry, APEC meeting in the United States in November. And uh, I think that there's a good chance that President Xi Jinping may visit the United States. I think that uh, the both uh, presidents, they met 11 times before, now actually 12 times before, and they know each other. I think that relationship uh, carry much weight. I think that, uh, again, on one hand, I fully agree with the, the other panelists uh, that uh, uh, it's a reverse relationship. It's almost impossible back to the, you know, uh, the 10 years ago or six years ago. But that doesn't mean that we should be engaged in conflict or uh, even war. That should and, and must and, uh, and can 
be avoided. I think that uh, uh, that's very, very important. But at the same time, I think uh, we do need to challenge some kind of a mindset, the Cold War mentality or binary thinking or obsessing with ideology. I think that uh, uh, I agree with Wang Jing, some of the decoupling or technological decoupling, value chain, supply chain, industrial move. On the one hand, it's costly. It may not help or uh, probably even hurt American interests. So, but this will take time. My point is that nothing is predetermined and uh, it's require the wisdom of the leaders and the communication and yeah. also to try to emphasize the commonality rather than exaggerate or overemphasize the differences. So what would be the seventh moment for you in bilateral ties that you would like to highlight that you think is consequential in bilateral ties as we move into the new year? I think COP15, um, that agreement, I mean, the fact that the U.S. and China can understand that there are global issues, global challenges that are all shared, and we need to cooperate on them. I think that definitely sets a positive tone. It's it's an optimistic development. And I agree with Professor Chang, by the way. I think for me, uh, it's not about, from my perspective, you know, ideology. The problem is just to impose it on others. But I agree that in fact the more the, the better the conversation the frequency of dialogue and engagement between both Beijing and Washington will have positive effects on the world at large countries are concerned regions are concerned that they'll be forced to choose and when right. you have developments like the COP15 like others where both can agree that there are broader development issues because in the end, the one consensus that we have as a global community is the sustainable development goals. I mean, that is primordial. It's essential. It's important. This should be the foundation. And Dr. Lee? Actually, the Peking Olympics and the World Cup, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, I think sports. this is to tell us. Yeah, sports, I think it should come, uh, you know, humanity, commonality of oh, the world. And yeah. this very difficult time, we see the uplifting uh, spirit. We see the American athletes, whether Chinese American or American Chinese or whatever, doesn't matter, but they all applaud the spirituality of the sports and uh, the shared destiny and the cross-cultural respect. So okay. this is also evident in the World Cup, you know, inspired so many people at this very difficult time. That's yeah. my moment. Anyway, it's great to have you on the show. And I think we do need to keep our heads up and keep our hopes up and work for a better future as we enter a new year. Many thanks to my guests. And with that, we come to the end of this special year-end edition of The Point with me, Lu Xin, looking back of the development of China-U.S. relations in the year 2022. Once again, we wish you a very happy holiday season. And as usual, follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Lu Xin in Beijing. We've got the point.